when we come to chapter 7 of, of Judges and we come to the second part of the story of Gideon, he has been commissioned. He has had to tear down his dad's altars to Baal, the false god and that the people are all worshiping. And he's, the Spirit of God has come upon him and he's rallying God's people. And God is on the move. And people know throughout the northern tribes of Israel near the Sea of Galilee, things are happening. God's on the move. And so it's happened fast. And as he's, the Lord's calling him, he, he puts a fleece out before the Lord where he put the fleece out that the fleece would be dry and the ground was wet as a sign. And then the fleece would be wet and the ground would be dry as a sign. And so he's had three signs of confirmation to get to where we're going to pick it up tonight in chapter 7. Because it's like, it's a big deal when you're like 30,000 and you're going to take on 135,000 in war. That's very inferior numbers, obviously. And you just want to know that you know. And so we, with that background, we pick it up in verse 1. I'm going to read the fullness of the text that we're going to study tonight, just so the whole story is out there for us. And then we'll come back and break it down. Then Zerubbabel, that's Gideon, because he got a name change when he tore down the idols of Baal. And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Harad, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And then it will be that of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, This one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. And so he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lap, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink the water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands and sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Verse 9. And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he, Gideon, went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Verse 16. 
Then he divided the 300 men into three companies and put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet and I and all who are with me, then you blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and the sword of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle of the watch, just as they posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left for, excuse me, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia towards Uriah as far as the border of Abel, Mahalath, by Tabith. And we'll stop there. This is the story of the victory, the first part of the victory, for Gideon and this amazing event, this army of one. Remember, God called Gideon back in chapter 6 that he would deliver Israel as with an army of one. And we talked about God plus one available person is an army of one because God can do whatever he wants, however he wants. But even more so, what's interesting is he chooses to work through people. God will work through angels, but particularly in the church age with the Great Commission, the church, its purpose in time, space, and matter for humanity to be his bride, to shine for him, to be the pillar and ground of truth for all of humanity in every generation. God chooses to work through people. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. But that great challenge of working through people is people love to take glory. We love to have glory amongst each other. And what can be more glorious than have God's supernatural work working through in us, in and through us, that we'd want some of that glory because it's like supernatural. First of all, any greatness we have is a gift from God. If someone can speak 10 languages and they have the brain that allows them to do that, that's a gift from God. If someone can sing in ways that no one else can sing, that's a gift from God. If you're a same bolt and you run faster than anyone else on planet Earth, that's a gift from God. Like it says in Chariots of Fire, the coach said to Harold Abrams, I can't do what God hasn't done in the first place. You can't put speed where speed's not there, right? It's a gift from God. So everything that we have naturally in who we are, our person, our looks, our physical strengths, our mental capacities, whether it be by human standards, below average, average, or above average, it is a gift from God. If we live a short life, a meaningful life, a quality life, a long life that's a quality life, those are all gifts from God. If we're blessed with a big family, it's a gift from God. If we're blessed with singleness, that's a gift from God. Whatever God has that is our human experience for who we uniquely are in our DNA, because there is no one like you in your DNA That's a gift from God. Whether people think it's great or it's secondhand, it's still God's gift to you as a human being. What we do with it is our gift to him. But the amazing thing is, of course, when we give our life to Christ, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, that we're saved by grace and that through faith and not of works, anyone should boast. So we don't earn our salvation by keeping the Ten Commandments. No one comes before God and says, I was a great person. You have to accept me in glory because I kept the Ten Commandments. No one can do that. We're told that we are his workmanship. So we're saved by faith in Jesus and by grace. And then we enter into his workmanship and we enter into that calling. 
So this is a supernatural element. So you have gifts practically as a human being. We all do. And then we have the supernatural gifts when we give our life to Christ. That is our calling where he just magnifies the practical gifts for his glory. And he would even give us spiritual gifts to enhance the purposes and the calling. And therein is the challenge that God has with choosing to work through people like Gideon and the nation of Israel and choosing to work through people like us and the church, the body of Christ in 2021. He has all the power. He chooses to work through people. People want glory. So he has to make sure he's working through people who won't steal his glory and will give him glory. This is the great challenge of the church age in every generation for the church. God wants to do a great work, but will men try and manufacture and control it? Will men let God get the glory? Will men seek the glory from it and quench the spirit and grieve the spirit? These are the challenges that we all face in our personal lives if we've given our life to Christ and in the church as a whole. And so in this story, we see that the army of one is an amazing truth because God really is willing to work through just one person. Even as he said in Chronicles, that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro over the face of the earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of even one person whose heart is loyal to him. So we want to be like David or Mary in the New Testament and be that person who has a loyal heart that will say, let it be to me as you've purposed, as you've said, as you have spoken. But it's a tricky thing because God will do supernatural things and illuminate the gifts he's given us, but it's for his glory and he needs to get the glory. And if we steal that glory, man, he'll let us implode on ourselves and he won't share his glory with another. And only God is worthy to receive all praise, honor, and glory. In fact, even Jesus said, and I talked about this on Tuesday night, that when you get glory from men, you don't get any glory with God. If you get the praise of men, you don't get praise on the day of the Lord. So there's a lot to see here. In fact, the phrase that really jumps out at us tonight is the phrase, too many. There it is, verse 2. God says, there's just, there's just too many people. There's too much humanity. There's too much man. There's too much pride. There's too much flesh. There's too much lust of the flesh. There's too much lust of the eyes. There's just too much man. There's too much. Demasiado. Demasiado humano, dead. Too much humanity. Just too much. Just too much. Then he says it again. He says it again in verse 4. There are still too many. Still too many. So this is our background. God wants to do a work, but there's just too much humanity to get in the way. My flesh, your flesh. So we can learn a lot from this study tonight because he wants to do the work. He does do the work and he will do the work. So we want to align ourselves, our mind, our heart, our soul, our whole being of who we are to be a part of that work. And so again, we come back to tonight this key thought. What is God wanting to do in your life, in my life, in this church, in your family, all the changes of life and the different seasons that we have, kids growing up, going away to college, kids being younger and starting having to go to public school or whatever, or you're going to homeschool now, or you're going to be moving to another state. Like, what is God wanting to do? Your kids, what does he want to do with you? Job changes, job transitions, semi-retirement, full retirement, because we have diversity of age here. What, what is God wanting to do? Because as I really think about this, and this has been a theme we've had in the book of Judges, what we need to have just on the forefront of our mind is that God is able to do more than we've ever seen him do. 
and why so many people, I feel, are accepting less. In fact, we even have our own government telling us, lower your expectations. But they don't, they govern us temporarily, but we're governed by Christ. And Christ never says lower our expectations. And as I said last week, the cross, the blood, tongues of fire, and the promises of God are not about lowering your expectations. We're governed by Christ. We're the church. Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, we raise our expectations. He doesn't dumb us down. He lifts us up. And he wants us to have a bigger vision for 2022 than we ever had for 2021 or the year that preceded it. So all that's affected us, it seems adverse or a trial or a test or even negative, that's going to just be in every generation. But Jesus hasn't changed. Like it says in Hebrews, it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we want to raise our expectations. We want to be thinking like, what, what new things, what current things, what new things is God wanting to do in this coming year in our life as we go forward? As we're praying about 2022, we want to expand our vision. Like the prayer of Jabez, Lord, expand my territory. And when you come to worship generation in Jesus' name, I want you leaving here with a vision for expanding kingdom, not retracting kingdom. Because the blood, the tongues of fire, and the promises are about expansion, not retraction. So now, the too much is too much me looking in the mirror. It's a too much humanity. But God wants to work in me and through me for it's God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure. So it applies to Pastor Joy, it applies to all of us as we give our life to Christ. So we want to think about this work and the vision for 2022 in our lives. And there are challenges. There are Midianites. There are Amalekites. They seem more innumerable. They're, not, they're like the sand of the shore, as we see. If you're looking for obstacles and if you're looking for excuses, man, we got now more than ever, don't we? You're, you're running short of excuses? I can give you some. Because they've crossed my mind, and I've seen them on social media. But as I've been saying, not problems, just solutions. Not problems, just solutions. Because everything works together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And our problems are God's problems. And our calling is his calling. So as we think about this, this too many and the work of God, we're going to come to a couple key thoughts. Let's think about his selection process. So in this selection process, God said to the first of the 32,000, the first cut, the first edit was, hey, whoever's fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 people turned and 10,000 remained. Don't be surprised when people are selling fear that two-thirds of the population buys fear. Fear sells. That's why horror movies can do 100 million before COVID. Back in the day when theaters were open, everyone went there. Fear sells. There's an adrenaline from fear. Why do you think there's new apocalypse movies every year? Why do you think there's always an end of the world? I thought it was only my generation that thought it was the end of the world. No. You study European history, Black Plague in the 1500s, they thought it was the end of the world. It's the end of the world. You can find an apocalyptic movie in almost any language on planet Earth right now. Whether it's Hindi movies in India or in Mandarin or Korean, you can find some K-drama that's the end of the world. Or some Japanese movie or Russian movie. Hey, the Russians make great end-of-the-world movies, by the way. It's in us to, to move toward, like, oh. And that's why it's always tricky when you're trying to prepare for the unknown. You still want to prepare for it. 
but you prepare for it out of common sense, not fear. And there is a difference. I got a flyer in the mail from our congresswoman, and it was all about emergency preparation. I'm like, oh, we got to prep our congresswoman. Look at this. Her checklist is the same as the one we've been giving to you for the last 10 years. Exact same checklist. Three days, three weeks, three months. Ought to be ready. She's basically saying, don't depend on the government. Put things in order so you have a plan. And that's what we've been saying as well. Now, we don't put that out there, our preparation book, to be prepared for cataclysmic events in society. So we move in fear, but we're just prepared because we know that if you don't prepare for your household, who's going to? But we don't let it govern us. That's just common sense. Like we say, you have life insurance, not so you're hoping to die, but when, if you do die, that your lost income takes care of your spouse or your children or your children's children. You have car insurance, not so you can go get on the 405 and rear-end somebody, but in the event you get rear-ended, or you do, because you're distracted, you have car insurance, Right? That's how that works. You don't, you don't pay a lot of money for health insurance so you can get sick and die. You pay a lot of money for health insurance because when you do get sick, it makes a big difference if you have it as opposed to not. So there's realities that you deal with, but that doesn't mean we're governed by fear. We can't be governed by fear. These guys, when you think about who God picked, he eliminated two-thirds of the population of his army who were fearful. He cut from his team 22,000 people who were governed by fear. They just weren't called to it because it was just beyond them. Their fear would affect their ability to function and fulfill what this ministry required. And it's okay. Let, let them go. Even in World War II with conscription and World War I with conscription, but particularly World War II, out of every 100 American GIs that were in the military, serving in the branches of the military, only 15% really saw combat. The vast others were involved in support, whatever, but really it was like 15% saw the major combat in the European theater and the South Pacific. In other words, a less than 25% of American GIs did most of the fighting in World War II. It, it takes a certain kind of group to do a certain kind of thing. So in the selection process, God eliminated the fearful. Also in the selection process, he eliminated good people. I'm not saying the fearful are bad people. I'm just saying they're fearful. So when you see people governed by fear right now, which is a lot of people, they're not bad people. They're just governed by fear. And I'll tell you in Jesus' name, don't be governed by fear. You don't live your life, man. It is what it is. I'm not going to let the fear of the unknown take away my sunshine on a Sunday morning. And I encourage you not to do the same. If I live, I live, I die, I die. I'm like Esther before the king. Like, man, I'm living life. And I'll cross every bridge when I get to it. But I'm not going to live in fear of things I have no control over. That doesn't work. But the second group that God, and he's doing this for Gideon, the second group that he, when he's getting, taking too many, and again, I have to re reference, Jesus said, wide and broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many go thereby, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. So first of all, the kingdom of God itself and the church is a narrow gate. It's a minority, always a minority. But then he's got this 10,000. Now, the 10,000, we talked about this Tuesday night. We need to talk about it again. The 10,000 fits Deborah's song. Remember when Deborah sang about the men of Israel? And she said, when men offer themselves willingly, 
that they're willing to go to battle, that they don't love their life to their own extent, but they're willing to lose their life and go to battle. These 10,000 men met that criteria. It's like, wow, we have 10,000 men in Israel who are willing to die for their convictions in faith of people of covenant to fight the Midianites. They're all in. They They are willing to go in against odds of 1 to 13 against them. And they're brave enough to, to pull the sword and do it. They're like, 22,000 go home, and there's 10,000 like, and Gideon's all right. Oh, these our numbers are dwindling, but this is good. This, this is first team All-American right here, 10,000 right here. And the Lord's like, way too many, too many. So God does the test. 9,700 get released. Of 10,000, who fulfilled what Deborah sang about, it's a good thing, 9,700 get released from this task. Now, if we were to read the rest of the text, which we're not going to do tonight, thousands and thousands of Israelites join the battle the moment it shifts from the valley and the Midianites are all fleeing to the Jordan River and going back to the east. So more than likely, this 9,700, they're the first ones in on, you know, coming after them on the retreat. They just weren't the first wave. Like so often in military conflict, there's a small elite group that goes in, and then the the larger forces come in afterwards. So you maybe have like special forces, Green Beret, Navy SEALs, and they go in and do this, take out the electrical grid and that, and then the bigger landing crews land after that. So these guys didn't make the cut for the 300, but the 9,700 are still first-rate people that are willing to offer themselves for their people. And so there's every reason to believe they were used in a mighty way, but in a different way. So in other words, there's a plan, but this plan is not their plan. They're good men, but they're not meant to do this. This is not their calling. And we talk about this because so often we miss out. You were in the final discussion for the job and there was five people and then you got down to three and you didn't get the job. And that can be very disappointing. You, you worked hard all summer to be a part of the varsity football team, and you're one of those four guys for quarterback, and it looked like you'd be the starting quarterback, but you didn't. You're not. You're the backup quarterback. In fact, the offensive coach, coach's kid is the starting quarterback because that works like that in life, doesn't it? Yeah. If you don't know that already, then I can't help you, but you're younger people. You will learn that. And we have to realize that being second or third or fourth or fifth or not getting the job, it's okay. Because if we truly trust that Jesus is going to raise us from the grave, we know he has the authority of our life to open doors and close doors. And when we say, Lord, you know, we acknowledge him in all of our ways and direct our step, we have to trust him to close doors. When your son wants to go to Point Loma Nazarene with ROTC and the door gets closed, he opens another door to go Cal State Maritime, which is what God with our son do with our son, Timmy. When your son, Luke, is applying for San Diego State, Long Beach State, and doesn't get all those, even though he's a straight-A student out of, out of OCC, he goes to Grand Canyon University, and he thrives and meets his future wife, and they're a wonderful couple. He has a great job with Hyundai, and they've given us three grandkids. Just because you didn't get the job doesn't mean you don't have the calling. It just means that's not your calling. So when we think about God choosing people, we need to realize that when he lets people go, when he releases you from a job, I think how many of my friends maybe used to be on South of Calvary Coast to Mesa, they're not anymore, and God called them to different things. Maybe they got let go, cutbacks, not just Calvary Coast to Mesa, any job for that matter. And he's like, hey, we have to trust that God's got this. 
We're trusting Jesus to raise us from the grave. So if you get second place in the job interview, you don't get the job, that's okay. You learn a lot from second place and runner-up. I was second, I was runner-up U.S. champion in 1977. I was runner-up world junior champion in 1978. Twice I was one spot from being a champion. And years later, I won the Pipe Masters, and I won all kinds of pro contests. You learn a lot from almost getting it. So in the past, I've always just looked at the 300 who made the cut, but at 60, I tend to look at the 9,700 who didn't get it because they were capable and they would be a good fit, but just it wasn't meant to be. So I just want to bring this forth. As God is selecting his team for Gideon, as God is confirming what he wants to do or doesn't want to do, it's okay if he says, this job's not for you. This house is not for you. This person is not for you. This situation is not for you. And that's okay. That is okay. Because again, in the book of Acts, it begins with two guys that are up for being the apostle to replace Judas. And when Peter and the guys cast lots, they, the lot, they, Lord, you know, and the lot fell to Matthias. And Justice, Barsabas, it did not fall to him. And you think about this, because again, when you read the book of Acts, you're like, oh, wow, Matthias replaces Judas. He's never mentioned again by name, although in the 12, when they mentioned the apostles, he would be one of them. But justice is mentioned again in Acts chapter 15 because he has a ministry to go out with the letter from the Jerusalem church to make things straight all through the empire for the body of Christ coming from the central church. He's mentioned by name again for a different task. So we think about too much or God doing his work, we we realize let him cut you if he wants to cut you from that project and that team and that situation. He's got something better. And if someone else gets it and you felt like you were more qualified, a man or a woman can receive nothing unless it comes from the Lord. So just let it be. God is bigger than a bad judgment or a good judgment. God is bigger than acceptance to a college or rejection from a college. We have to believe. I mean, we're believing Jesus to raise us from the grave. We have to believe that he's bigger than the disappointments of being like making the first cut worth the 10,000, but not making the cut to be at the 300. That's a big cut, by the way, too. And that's okay. So when we think about God's selection process, we have to let him bring the right people, the specific people, and we need to know that he's in control. We need to let him choose his people. In Acts chapter 13, the Lord says, set aside Saul and Barnabas for the work I called them to. He picked the right people. And sometimes those people work out and sometimes they don't. Jesus picked Judas. And he didn't exactly work out too well, did he, from our perspective? Paul chose Demas and Demas abandoned him in the ministry. You just have to know, though, that let God do the choosing. Let his leaders who have responsibility do the choosing. And just know that God's in control. Like the church of Philadelphia, he opens a door that no man can close and closes a door that no man can open. And the wisest thing we can do with our personal life is say, God, open if it's you close if it's not. Because when there's a work to be done, we need to know we're called to that work and we're empowered in that work or we're not called to that work and to let it go. Because to strive for a work that God's not in is the worst thing imaginable to do in your life. And you'll know it when you get into it. The Lord's just not in this. And some people strive. Listen to a Pastor Chuck study from 50 years ago. He was talking about how many people have their idea what they think God should be doing in their life, and they run with it, and they force it on the Lord. And I would say to that, like Drizella putting on Cinderella's slipper. 
And you're saying, oh, it fits, it fits, it fits, because it's something a person's manufacturing. You've got to let it go. If God cuts you, good for you, because you're closer to what he's called you to do. If you've got someone you think is supposed to be part of your team and God cuts them, good for you, because you don't want them on your team. God has something different for them, and it'll just not be the right fit with you. We've been here for 17 years. You know how many people we've seen come and go? The fluidity of this church, pastors, deacons. We don't know. It's God's people. You're God's people. We're just here. And as he moves and does his thing, we let him do it. That's what we have to do. That's maturity. It's God's work. And there can be too many people. But in the end, there absolutely has to be the right people. And we need to trust him to make us the right person for the right fit. And we need to trust him to let people we love and care about to be the right people for the right fit as well. And we need to have the courage to recognize what's not the right fit and let God tell you it's not the right fit and actually say it. You know, we love Bobby Brown. We all love Bobby Brown from Calvary Costa Mesa. He'll be out here to lead us in worship in December. I've known Bobby since we came back from Vermont in 1996 when he's a 16-year-old worship leader. Bobby's like a son to me. When we started this church, I asked Bobby Brown to be our youth pastor in the summer of 2005. We have about 40 kids. We had all these Calvary kids because all my kids went to Calvary at the time. We, do, we did free surf lessons on Wednesday at 6th Street and Huntington Beach. You know how many people came from Calvary Costa Mesa for free surf lessons on Wednesday in the summer? Everyone's like, people were dropping their kids off and like, hey, there's like, we're like a daycare, you know, for Calvary Costa Mesa. We had all these kids coming to surf and like, the, and we didn't assume liability for them. So they're all up there on Main Street at Wahoo's or Jamba Juice, whatever. It was a free for all. And, and Bobby, we had asked to be our youth pastor. But, you know, by August, it was very apparent that he was not called to be that role. Brian Jamison and Jeremy Foster were the other pastors with me and the board members with me that time. And I'm like, we knew that Bobby was not the guy. And I'm like, how? Because it was kind of like an internship, you know, so you kind of test the water. I'm like, how am I going to tell Bobby? And sometimes they'll come to you and say, you know, I'm just not the guy. And you're like, whoo, you know. But other times you got to go and tell him you're not the guy. And I'll never forget when I called Bobby. It was one of the, probably the hardest thing I had to do the first few months of this church. I called Bobby, Bobby, and you're like, we don't think this is the right fit. And he goes, I know it's not the right fit. And he knew. And he didn't want to let me down, but he knew. A week after that conversation, he was hired by Calvary Chapel High School to do music ministry and photography. And now, 17 years later, he's still doing, serving at Calvary Chapel High School. And over the last 10 years, he took kids of all these different classes to do mission trips, primarily in the Dominican Republic, and has been so fruitful in the right fit for him. His music skills, his photography, his working with kids, he was the right fit, and he's in the right placement. And he still comes and leads us in worship about every six weeks, right? Bobby Brown with Sophie McEwen who was like this big back then and is now a woman now. So you have to let God do that in our lives with you and through you. Too much is too much. And too much means it's not the right fit. Now, another thing we see is confirmation. Because it says in verse 10, God had already given Gideon three confirmations before this. The initial calling and then the fleece dry, the fleece wet in the previous chapter. But then here, he says in verse 9, okay, it's the same night. So he just had his army cut from 32,000 to 300 people. Like, oh my goodness. 
But God says, I'm going to give you the victory. And I'm not going to share the glory with men. So this is how it's going to work. He says, but in verse 10, if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. So God's saying, look, if you're afraid, I'm going to give you a sign. You're going to go down there with your right-hand man, Pura, the witness of two or more, and I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to encourage you yet again. I gave you the sign when I called you. I gave you the sign with the fleece back and forth when you asked for it. Now I'm going to give you a fourth sign. So just go on down there. Go sneak in the camp. And I'm going to give you a sign. And so he's in the camp. And what are the chances that one Midianite has a dream and the other Midianite can interpret it? There's 135,000 Midianites. And this guy says, oh, I had this dream. He's like, well, that's strange because that's the sword of the Gideon. It's like, you know, it's like they're like, they're like talking donkeys with Balaam or something. When God, when God wants to give you a sign, he can make normal people abnormal or abnormal people normal. You follow me? He, when, when he's giving you a sign to confirm what he wants to do with you, he'll give you a sign. And if you're walking in the spirit, you have the frequency to recognize that sign. You, you begin to put things together. Well, that, that scripture really spoke to me. That, when they said that on K-Wave, that really spoke to me, that, that, that word. That song just spoke to me in a different way right there. And then it's like, oh, my mom just said that. And then this happened. And then this happened. He'll give you signs. And the higher the stakes are, like selling your house, moving away, going away to college, like, you know, like you thought it was going to be local OCC or something or Long Beach Community College. You're like, no, you're going far away. He'll give you confirmation. God wants to guide you and he wants to guide me with clarity, particularly on bigger decisions. He has a plan with our bigger decisions. He wants to lead us by faith. We need to invite him to be over those decisions so he can. And he wants us to receive by faith what he's showing us to direct us toward what he has for us. And as we look toward 2022, and we think about God doing a great work in your life, finding your greatness in the midst of too much, too much of us, and you got to get out of your comfort zone, it was... The statement was that attempt great things from God and expect great things from God. But the idea is that we need to do something beyond us. And it was D.L. Moody who also said similarly, you've got to do things. If you can do it, then you need to do something you can't do because you know God's got to do it. Not again manufacturing it, but because you know God's put something so profound in your heart to do that it would seem crazy and only he can do it. In other words, not being in a rut or in a comfort zone, which spiritually can be a death sentence because we're called to live by faith. We're called to walk by faith. So we're being stretched all the time. That's why I said earlier, we have to be thinking outside the box. There, at any given time in my life, I'm praying about this thing and this thing and that thing. So this thing in my personal life, this thing, maybe family stuff, this thing with WG, this thing, the greater body of Christ. Like, I'm... I'm thinking like we cannot be stagnant. We have to have fresh vision. And the fresh vision for a believer in Christ is a step of faith. And a step of faith means we don't completely understand it and we can't manipulate it or control it. It has to be initiated by the Lord, stirred up by the Lord. And like, okay, here we go. I'm going for it. And what have I told young people for 30 years? You never have enough money to get married. You never have enough money to get, have children. 
and you never have enough money to go for it with full-time ministry. So you should just do all three in faith because you'll never have enough money to do any one of those three things. So you can't make it based upon, you, you got to have a faith element, but you need to have the confirmation. So the Lord puts the calling on your heart and you begin to move toward it and then he gives you the confirmation. Can you imagine the excitement? You think of the nerves and how nervous Gideon must have felt when he's down to 300 men going like, oh man. And it's the same night. Like, well, you can't sleep anyways when your army's been reduced from 32,000 to 300 men, right? How are you going to sleep anyways? And they're like, hey, look, if you're a little uncertain, here we're going to do. Go down in their camp right now. Go spy with your buddy and I'll give you a sign. Think how excited he was when he got that sign. See, when you live by faith and you take those steps of faith and you get out of your comfort zone, you need God to give you a sign. You need God to, God to speak to you. The Lord says, put me to the test. I'll show you. And so it's not so much like testing the Lord, but really him confirming what's already there. Lord, if you're in this, just, you know, it's like... Uh, the servant of Abraham, when he's going to go find a wife for Isaac, his son, he's like, Lord, if it comes out this way and this lady comes out and says this and that and this and that, draw water for the camel, then I'll know it's you. And that's exactly what happened. And that was Isaac's wife to be, Rebecca. That's how God works. So you have this calling that's beyond you because it's too much of you to, for you to manufacture it. So it's got to be from the Lord and he calls you. You say, oh, Lord, this is kind of scary. Like, okay, well, I'm going to, Lord, can you just give me one more sign? Because we are going to, this is a radical change for us. This is very profound. And then let him confirm it. Let him show you. Again, listen to the a Pastor Chuck study from 40 years ago. He was talking about fleeces, which is what the previous chapter had. Like, put a fleece before the Lord. Like, okay, Lord, if it's you, you're going to do this or whatever. And we don't want to box God in on a tight fleece. Like, Lord, if this is you, some lady who's 40 years old is going to walk up. She's going to say, your dog's name is Sally. You know, like, you you don't do that. But, Lord, if it's you, you'll know. Because the Spirit will confirm with our spirit, this is the confirmation. You will know. Like when I went to Russia two years ago and I'm praying through the Calvary Chapel Missionary Prayer Book and I pray for Dave Markey in Russia and I say, what is Dave Markey doing in Siberia? How did he get there and what is he doing there? And then the next day, for no reason, it's on my heart to call Billy Rutledge in North Carolina who has cancer and see how he's doing. And I call him and say, Billy, how are you doing with the cancer? I'm doing good. I'm getting ready to go to Russia. Oh, really? Huh. Where are you going? Siberia. I'm going to go visit Dave Markey. I think I'm supposed to go with you. Well, you know, it's impossible for you to get a visa right now because I'm leaving in two weeks. I think I'm going to apply for a visa. And I, I said, I need to pray for one day. I'll call you back within 24 hours. And then I'll go from there. I got that visa in seven days. Then two weeks, I'm on Lafonza going to Frankfurt and I'm flying to Moscow going, I cannot believe three weeks ago it wouldn't even on my radar, but like praying for Dave Markey, then calling Billy, who I've never called him before, but it was on my heart to call him. And the next thing you know, I'm in Russia and there it is. And we've sown so much fruit in Russia in the last two years. It's amazing. We just covered their pastor's conference last week. We got everybody there that need to be there. You did. 
From our abundance, we help those who have less. We put Russian pastors from all those different time zones on planes, trains, and automobiles to be in Vadimer for four days we built up in their faith. You and I did with our offerings in this church. We sent all the Calvary youth to their summer camp. We sent all the youth to their winter camp in Sochi and into Abskaziah to do all their ministry. None of this fruit would have ever happened that we're all going to share in eternity had I not prayed for Dave Markey in that missionary prayer book and connected the dots. Let God connect the dots. And I got more Russia stuff. It's on the table right now. But wouldn't you know, I won't tell you but what the fleece is, but I've got a fleece out there. I'm like, hmm, all right. Well, if I'm going back to Russia, that's a big deal. And so, Lord, I'm not going to put you in a box, but I think, you know, I want to have your confirmation. You know, when you land in Moscow, you want to know you're called to be there, right? Can I get a witness? Moscow's a long way to go on your own and striving. So you can pray for me that God would confirm what he wants to do. God wants to confirm for you what he wants to do. He wants to give you clear, clear confirmation for the steps of faith to do great things and to be great for him. But he's got to get the glory. See, you can't manufacture your greatness and bring a plan and go, here's my plan, God, I'm going to do this. It doesn't work that way. That's upside down. It's his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as in heaven. It's not your will come and be forced on heaven. That's, that's bad, that's bad, bad, bad. Because God knows what he wants to do from the very conception of your existence in your mother's womb. And in the end, we have to trust in his bringing it to pass. Because the last thing we see here in a closing thought, is there in verse 22, the supernatural happens where the 300 blew the trumpets and the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. He made them go nuts. God made the Midianites, you know, Gideon, in this initial combat confrontation, they didn't use a sword. They used a light, a torch, and a trumpet. And God just allowed them to turn on one another and attack each other. And that's why we don't need to get worked up with defending God or his name or having to prove our rights or this and everything else. God knows how to catch the wise in their own craftiness. And it's bad enough to be a Midianite because Midianites think they own everything and run everything. What they really don't know is God can make them go nuts in a split second. He can make people go nuts. He can, he can just, all the plottings of evil men against the people of covenant, which is what you have right here, all the people who want to plunder the church, attack the church, limit the church, silence the church, they're like Midianites and Amalekites. They're just something God's allowed so we can cry out to him. Do you think God's going to abandon the church in 2021, 2022? Do you think Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave to leave his bride hanging at the mercy of Amalekites and Midianites? Of course not. It's never about Amalekites and Midianites. It's about the people of covenant trusting in the God of the universe who has a plan for our life. So we don't need to come up with some great plan to make the church relevant in 2022. We just need to seek the Lord personally and collectively to hear what he's calling us to do and take steps of faith in that direction and believe him for great things and believe him for the greatness what he wants to do in each of our lives and to get after it and to embrace new seasons and new chapters and things that are totally different than anything we've ever known before 
Would to God that we'd all be in a place where we're living by such extreme faith in 2022 that we're so out of our comfort zone that we wake up out of necessity, crying out to the Lord, seeking the Lord in the morning with a a passionate desperation that's joyful and the overflow of abundant life. Not because we're going to be hung out to dry in in the lion's den with Daniel, but because abundant life is so sweet, we don't want to miss one day of it. So God has a great work to do, but our flesh, our pride can be too much. He has to get the glory. When he tells us the dream, when he tells Gideon the dream of the Midianites, what does Gideon do? He worships the Lord. When the, if he, when the, uh, the tribe of Ephraim came out, you saw this Tuesday night, and I said, hey, what are you doing? He's like, hey, you guys can get the glory. When the glory is God's, you don't even want it. So when other men come out and say, that's our glory, you let them have it. It doesn't matter who gets the glory because the glory is the Lord's. What matters is we believe him for greatness and we get after it. We take the steps of faith to be it. And we keep our pride and our flesh in check and out of the way so God can just do phenomenal things. So I want to challenge all of us to meditate, to think, to slow down and find still water and think about how great God is, how so great a salvation we have that we don't want to neglect, how great is the power of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life, how great is the calling of God on every individual's life, and think about what it is that he's done so far, like a song of Deborah, proclaiming what he's already done in praise, and be thinking about what it is that he wants to do. We need more believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord to wake up with great expectations, who walk in humility, who seek the Spirit, and really are up for all the grand adventures that God has for us. When Pastor Chuck's life in ministry, essentially was summarized in the 90s. It was called a venture of faith. He finished his. We're in the midst of ours. We, we can do this because he's doing it. We got to be available and we got to stay out of the way. We got to discern it and keep moving forward. An army of one, spirit-filled, spirit-led.